Just as the mother zombie protects her young, so too does Mutual Life of Omaha protect you. Hi, welcome to Hey All You Zombies. I'm Chris Abel. And I'm Richard Krauss. Richard Krauss, did you ever watch Mutual Life of Omaha? Remember that show? When I was a kid, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what was his name? What was the host's name? Oh, it's, it's Marlon, Marlon Perkins, wasn't it? Marlon Perkins? Yeah, Marlon Perkins. Yeah, Marlon Perkins. Well, and the guy that he would, he would send off to go wrestle the alligator was Jim, I believe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, let me look up Marlon Perkins there. Because <laughs> he's going to be, you know, I mean, not everyone's going to remember him. Oh, yeah, totally. This is pretty great right here. I know we've, we've gotten off on a tangent already. We're only 40 seconds into the show. But look at this. Look. There's uh, Marlon Perkins hugging a tiger. <laughs> but, yeah, when I was a kid, I mean, we grew up uh, – with only two or three, well, three, I guess, uh, television stations. And so shows like, you know, the Wild Kingdom and that sort of thing, a Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, uh, was something that you watched because, you know, if not, it was either curling on the other channel or I grew up in Nova Scotia, it would be like the Lobster Report or something, you know, on one of the other channels. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's on my mind because they, they, they actually launched an app uh, for it a couple of weeks ago. And it's hokey as all hell. Right. I mean, just, you know, um, uh, that show, of course, if you were watching it today, has not aged well. It's yeah. very much a, a, a there it is, of its, of its time, you know, the coloring book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's got the, 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 the same kind of graphic like you just showed. And then they've got this narrator with a deep, smoky, bare voice, you know, welcome to a wild kingdom. You know, yeah. it's just, yeah. Fantastic. So I had that in my head. And one of those things that you remember, you know, Mutual Life of Omaha protects you. You're right. Uh, but that's uh, not what we're going to be talking about, of course, with a show like Hey All You Zombies, if you've been tuning in each week. You know that we're really on a walking dead kick, and uh, we will be talking about this week's big episode, uh, another fantastic episode, uh, kind of a very distinct Terminator Aliens theme to it. So. Mm -hmm. I really want to dig into that. And then after that, if you're not into The Walking Dead, you, you know, don't worry. The second half of the podcast, um, Mr. Krauss is going to be talking about Bates Motel, a new series that came out. Yeah. And I'm going to be diving into something I'm calling Jurassic Pigeon, uh, <laughs> or the most delicious animal in history part two. Uh, it's been recently announced last week that we now have the technology to bring extinct species back to life, that whole story that we all know from Jurassic Park. So we're going to dive a little bit into that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, I saw the, the photo of a frog that they brought back that gives birth through its mouth. Yes. Uh, of, of an ancient. It, I think it's one of the creatures they're planning to bring back, a right. frog that actually, uh, rather than give birth the normal way, simply vomits up its young. Uh, and this was one of the, the, the species that we are responsible for no longer being on the planet. And a lot of people now are rushing around trying to think of what animals should be the next ones for us to bring back. Thankfully, Velociraptor is not on the list. Because that <laughs> well, would be awful. That would be awful. Um, cool, but awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, Walking Dead, we may as well uh, jump in here. I mean, I, you know, this was, uh, I thought, we've only got two more episodes left. So we're, we're, we're at three episodes where, where it seems to be the prelude to a war. It seems like there's, there's going to be, I guess, not next week. I'm, uh, my prediction, here's my prediction. In the last ten minutes of next week, it'll start. And then the final episode will just be, 
you know, zombie killing and gun shooting, and something's going to happen to the governor. He's either going to get pushed off, pushed away, or he's going to get killed. He will not be back in the next season. There, I've said it. That's what I say. <laughs> so at this point, just a reminder, this is going to be a spoilerific discussion of the episode that, of Walking Dead. That wasn't a spoiler, though, however, because yeah. I don't know what's going to happen, really, but that's my <laughs> opinion. So that was not a spoiler, but there will be spoilers here. There will be spoilers here, just to be wary. I know a lot of people, um, thankfully, when they see this episode of yours and I, they don't watch it immediately on the day that we record it. They leave it a couple of days. So there's a good chance that people will have the, the opportunity to catch up with their DVRs and then come back and, and sort of hear what we're talking about. But I, I thought it was a very strong episode, and it seemed to me that they were listening to you. Because in the past, you said one of the things that you felt that the show needed was a bit more atmosphere. Yeah spookiness you know a chance to kind of you know bring back elements of horror and there definitely was that that whole beautiful cat and mouse game between the governor and andrea and the factory uh yeah. that was beautifully done i felt well no it was it was so you know what's happened here is she's left the compound if you haven't seen it she's left the compound she's on the run the governor's like she's not getting away so he goes out on a, on a, on a one-man sort of vigilante hunt for her, and he's going to track her down. He, he traps her inside an old factory or an old abandoned building of some kind. And um, I thought that was really well done. I thought that there was a great deal of tension because the thing that this show has done so nicely is that they kill people randomly. And, you know, you, you sometimes don't see it coming. And Andrea is a character who, for me, is on the bubble. She's probably going to go at some point. Now, it might not be this season. They may wait till next season. But I don't anticipate her being around for a long, long time. And she seems to be sort of a part of this story arc that seems to be, the door seems to be closing on it a little bit, the whole thing with the governor. And, you know, it's going to come down to a big shootout, a big battle of some kind, I think. And I think she's going to be uh, collateral damage here somehow, particularly when you see how the show ended. Although, I don't feel that uh, now that the governor has caught her and he's put her in this torture chamber that he seems to have uh, rigged up, which looked like it's originally for Michonne, but uh, it is now, I think, you know, whoever happens, if the, if, the, if the gimp mask fits, wear it, I guess, you know, so it happens to be on Andrea right now. But I have a feeling that she'll get out of that. Uh, but I don't know that she's going to make it much further into the series, but we'll see. But I thought that it was really uh, atmospheric. It was good. It was, you know, it, it, it proves that the stuff that you can't see is often more terrifying than the stuff that you, that you can see. So all the stuff lurking in the shadows, a loud bang off to the, to the side, uh, a, a creaky door, a, a, a shadow that you don't quite know what it is. Is it the governor hiding in a, in a corner waiting to come out after Andrea, or is it just a box? You don't know. All that stuff builds great tension, and I think that it's, uh, it, it works so well because it's primal, it is old-fashioned, and still the old-fashioned scares still work. Well, and really well done. I mean, uh, I, when I, the feeling I had was, was definitely that this was the kind of chase and cat and mouse game we've seen played out in movies like Terminator and Aliens. And, uh, of course, that's, that's potentially of import because Gail Ann Hurd is the executive producer of The Walking Dead. Yeah. And she was one of the, the main – there are producers on shows and movies who really don't do much. They're just sort of part of the, the team. Right. And then there are those who play an integral part. And my understanding is that with James Cameron, specifically when it came to uh, Terminator and Aliens 
and dealing with a female uh, heroine like Sigourney Reaver and Linda Hamilton, that she played a very strong role. So I'm, yeah. I'm kind of wondering if when it became the time that they realized they were going to do this in the script, if she didn't sort of leverage some of her own experience of having done this with James Cameron, because we've seen plenty of times on very cheesy science fiction shows on television, people try to do that imposing Terminator walk of somebody just chasing some helpless. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah but, and, and, and not being the typical, oops, I twisted my ankle kind of helpless, but in a heroine who's just trying to, actively think how can I get out of this situation how can I get back how can I do that I've seen it play out several times not only in movies video games and television shows it's usually horrible really poorly done so how they managed to match it and do it really really well that impressed me well uh, I've just thrown up a picture here of me talking with Gail Ann Hurd on stage at the Tiff Bell Lightbox last year uh, I hosted an event with her where we talked about The Walking Dead and uh, how to keep people's interest over a multi-arc uh, multi-series uh, 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 you know, show um, for a, a student body of four or five hundred script writers and actors and things. Uh, so, and she told me some interesting things, but uh, as you say, uh, she is very definitely highly involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, workings of the show. And I think, you know, Andrea's character, as flawed as she may be, still represents a, a woman who is sort of like looking out you know, for herself, she is able to survive. She makes decisions. Uh, she doesn't always make the right decisions, but she is, you know, she's she's out there in the world, and she's tough, and, you know, she's smart. Uh, she just doesn't seem to be particularly likable to the fan base that watches this show. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all. And I'm surprised a little bit, but, you know, I, I'm interested, uh, you know, to know what, what is sort of the reaction is from the Twitterati and everybody else. As the governor was chasing her... As uh, they had their little showdown, very, pardon me, very effectively done in the warehouse, uh, and then she appears to get away, and then at the last second, you know, gets snatched back. Uh, if there were people going, woohoo, this is it for her, or oh my god, they got Andrea. So I'm, I'm curious. I'm also curious to know why they would put Rick on guard duty, someone who has fantasies, who sees things, who isn't always the most stable character. Why would you have him up there? Because I thought, as he's up there, he's got his gun and he's looking through the scope and everything, you know? And then he sees something, or he seems to, and then there's that long moment where he's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Am I just imagining this? Meanwhile, it's the governor taking Andrea away. Yeah. If they had Glenn up there, I guarantee it would have been a different end to that story. Sure. If it had been Carol that was out watching, or even Carl, then definitely there would have been, you know, a chase, an extended chasing to go and try to get Andrea back, but... And, and that part was so well done because that's something you should have expected coming. Uh, you know, the moment that you're watching it and you're going, this is like the Terminator. Well, of course, in all those movies, in all the chase scenes, the, the villain at the end, just when you think that they're gone, grab you and, and for that shock at the end. And yet still, you know, I jumped. Uh, it still caught me by surprise the way yeah, they did it. No, they're not going to. When the, when the governor goes, it's going to be spectacular. When they kill him, he's going to go down and they'll be like, he'll be covered in zombies or something, but you'll see it. They'll show it to you because you can't kill off a character that you've brought along, a villain that you've brought along for an entire season. You can't kill him off without making it spectacular. You can't have him, you know, see zombies coming towards him and then have him fade into the black and that's it. 
there's got to be more. So I knew at that, at, you know, at the end of that whole warehouse scene that he was alive, that he was going to make it through. Um, but uh, I didn't exactly imagine that he would catch up with her so quickly. No, neither did I. Uh, yeah, there's going to be poetry in the way that his ending comes. I mean, it's just everything about that character has been that way where every phrase that he speaks is pregnant with double meaning. Um, there were a lot of people speculating because of the last week's show when they were sitting there having their little negotiation that because the governor brought Bastille whiskey, that right. was a, a hint that he, there was going to be a, this, you know, storming of the Bastille, of the, the prison. Yeah. And that when Rick took a drink of that and didn't notice, you know, there's that moment of aha, you know. So, yes, you can tell there's there's going to be that that the ending of the governor is going to be very poetic. Yeah. It should be something that people will go, you know, should make you kind of smile. I like that. Well, it's interesting, you know, the Bastille whiskey, all that stuff. Like, I remember one time uh, hosting a QA and a with uh, Mary Heron. She directed American Psycho and... Uh, um, the I shot Andy Warhol movie and a number of things, but we, we happened to be showing American Psycho and we showed it to an audience and, uh, uh, you know, people would put up their hands after and say, uh, Ms. Harry, uh, now, did you, uh, wet down the streets because you wanted to show that inside his soul was crying and, you know, people would read into the stuff and she'd be like, no, it looks cooler on film if you wet down the streets at night. <laughs> uh, and, and people, all the, all the sort of great imagery that people have, you know, who clearly have watched this movie way too many times. Uh, and we're sort of like the, the conclusions they were drawing from either visual clues or whatever else, much like we do every week here, I should be like, yeah, no, I hadn't planned that, but it's a good thought. It's a nice thought. So I, I do like how people uh, do seem to bring their own kind of um, uh, interpretation to things that might not necessarily be there uh, in the first, but I think the Bastille rum or whiskey or whatever it was, was a fairly, uh, uh, I think that was planned. But yeah. other than that, sometimes uh, I think it's possible that we were imbuing the show with a bit more, giving the writers a bit more credit. Well, one of the things I've been cheer uh, looking for on the show, and I was cheering because I felt like they were finally giving me one of my criticisms, was that you should have the characters <clears throat> pull a move or do some plotting or some planning. So that wonderful sequence where Andrea stands in front of the door waiting for the governor to come towards her and then she sort of pulls it aside and allows that whole row of, of zombies to come in and flood him over. I thought was, yeah, and, and the way that she slid herself so that when the door closed, she could just look at him yeah. through the broken window uh, was, was the kind of thing that we need to see more of which is to show that these people have survived for a year now for a very good reason and that they are kind of quick thinkers. They are, uh, you know, people who can overcome a situation, can improvise, and it gives you that wonderful dynamic where you're kind of starting to cheer for her, you know? It's a little more impressive. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And, and you know, on this show, I thought that she kind of uh, showed all the stuff that would make her a likable character, except that people still don't. I mean, on Twitter, people are still like, oh, that friggin' Andrea. They, they just simply don't like her. No. But uh, but she did, I mean, she did some stuff on the show that was pretty cool. That move to get sort of on the other side of the door and get the zombie, that was excellent. That was a good move. That was a, a pure uh, horror movie move, and it worked really well. I loved it. I loved when they came flooding out after him. And that sort of look on his face, that kind of, what am I going to do? And then just flies into action, you know? But, uh, but I knew, yeah, having said that, I knew he was also going to survive that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that there's any other outcome for that character other than 
sayonara and soon, I think. Yeah. Uh, now, what did you think about the touch of the little murder whistle? That... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like stuff like that because, you know, it, it's it's just a little – it's it's a character piece. It's Ray Milland in a, The Lost Weekend. Every time he orders a drink, he goes like this to the bartender. I'd like another drink, please. And, you know, it's just something that doesn't really mean anything but sort of adds a little something to it. Yeah, well, and it was kind of a creepy, wonderful way in which they did it because they, they planted in this, the episode very early on. And there he is puttering away in his <clears throat> workshop, uh, torture room. Got his little dentist chair, all his little, you know, things. And he's recording himself whistling. And I'm not quite sure why he was doing that and then repeating it over and over again so that it becomes something they can refer back to later oh, on. It, yeah, it, it's coming back. That'll That'll be... A diversionary tactic. It'll be. It'll be something. It'll be that. That you don't put something like that in there and then just never go back to it. It's too. <laughs> the behavior is too odd. Uh, but no, I. I. Uh, I wonder. I mean, I. Was, I think that these next two episodes um, are going to be quite something. Because as you know, I've said before here, I don't love cliffhangers in shows. No. I find them cheap. I find them. Uh, you know. I mean. I know. Uh, you know, you want people tuning in. You want people. You want to give something. You want to give people enough uh, so that they're, that they're satisfied in the actual moment while they're sitting watching the show. But you also want them, you know, to be excited about coming back next week and seeing more. And you know, it, this show has been good at doing that without resorting to a lot of cliffhangers. I remember tweeting in the uh, zombie bomb episode uh, when all hell started to break loose near the end of that episode. I'm like, uh, I, I tweeted something like, uh, there's going to be a war, dot, 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 next week. There's going to be a big shootout next week. And then they gave it to us in that episode. Yeah. A lot of other shows would have stopped, you know, after the first couple of gunshots had been fired. And that would have been the, that would have been the, oh, my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? Well, you got to wait seven days to find out. They didn't do that on that episode. And they still gave you more. And you wanted to tune in the following week. This week was a bit of a cliffhanger because you want to find out what's going to happen with Andrea, but that last shot was so cool that like, like there she is. And she's like, you just can only imagine what she's thinking. Like, and, and I, 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 I thought, you know what, I, as much as I hate the, the manipulation of that, that worked well. I thought. Yeah, it was a brilliant shot. I, I think they, had, they, they handled it any other way it would have been of a cheat to make that into a, a cliffhanger, but that was a, a real stuck in the middle of, with you, Pulp Fiction kind yeah. of scene. Oh, my Hannibal Lecter in there somewhere with the, with the mask. Well, and the, the lighting, you know, just the, the way that they had it all set, and she's strapped and looking both a victim and defiant at the same time, where, yeah. you know, it's yeah. just the look that's in her eyes. I thought that was really well done and perfect in that it leaves you, um, you want to break so you can go off and try to think what is she going to do? How is she going to get out of this? It just allows your mind to keep running. And she yeah. really is in trouble because nobody knows that she's there. Yeah. Whereas, nobody knows that room is there. Well, they've seen it. Milton has seen it. And I think Milton's probably going to be the guy that, that rescues her. But, um, cause I don't think anything much is going to happen to her. I mean, I think that there might be a little bit of, you know, she's going to be menaced with some pliers or something for, <laughs> for a little while. Uh, but I don't think anything much is going to happen to her. Uh, down in we'll, that room. We'll make you sit in the comfy chair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
No, but yeah, that was, that was, I think, really brilliant. And again, it's always great when the show kind of pushes things, is willing to kind of do something that, that makes it seem like it's not safe. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, this is what this is leading up to. I mean, no matter what happens in the next couple of episodes, uh, major characters are going to be gone, mm-hmm. one way or the other. I mean, this cannot, I don't think that they can sustain this any longer. I don't think this can go into another season without it feeling kind of like, ah, it's just more of the governor and this. The governor may get away, maybe they'll call the troops. That would be just the worst ending ever. They're just like, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. Let's just leave one another alone. And that's how we're let. That's not going to happen. But I do think that um, uh, something catastrophic has to happen between Rick and the governor and their and their their particular clans. And uh, major characters are going to go. And I mean, the worst case scenario is that this turns into a who shot JR kind of thing. You know, you, you hear a gunshot. The last thing you hear is a gunshot. And then, you know, both the governor and Rick fall backwards as though they're dead. And you have to wait another, you know, four or five or six months, whatever, until they, uh, they come back with the new season to see who gets up and who stays down. Yeah. Uh, another thing I thought they did really well this episode was in handling uh, zombie deaths. It's a real problem for the show that they have to try to find new and creative ways to kind of uh, do that. And the the fire pit scene. Yeah. Oh, where they, they torch the zombies and you think that's it. And then they come back. Uh, and the the diorama that they have constructed at the bottom sure of all these <laughs> burnt zombies that are not dead. They're still alive with the big white bearing teeth. And it's almost like one big H.R. Giger painting where they're all merged together. I thought that was uh, uh, disgusting and, and really well done at the same time. Yeah, well, they, they're, they're – uh, uh, yeah, it was like they were fused together or something in this little play. It was That was quite something. Um, like villagers from, from Pompeii that had been yeah, trapped yeah. by the volcano and, and but did not die, you know? Just a, like just a little bit of movement in there. Uh, they didn't show the inside of the of the horse van or whatever that was. It was filled with zombies that got torched as well, which was just as well, I think. I bet you it's grim in there. But, yeah, no, that was cool. That, that thing, I, 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 I think it was Milton, but I'm not sure. It seemed like it. I mean, uh, it, well – Definitely, it was a great face-off between those two characters when right. the governor came out of uh, talking with Tyrese, who, to their credit, I love Tyrese and his wife, who in the comic books, I believe, is Julie, but somebody else had said a different name, so now I don't have it right. But I thought it was fantastic the way that those two characters can look at each other and then start talking as if they had a, a conversation yeah. in their heads. Yeah. That was brilliant. But I don't think it's them. I don't think it's them that did it. No, no. Uh, I think that was pretty clear. And what was interesting was that when they were given the opportunity to give up information about Andrea, a woman they had just met 45 seconds earlier, uh, they didn't. They didn't say anything, which is really bad news for the actress who plays Andrea. Right. uh, Because she is, as you've pointed out, you know, I mean, there are death threats against her from fans. Uh, She has been given huge amounts of flack. The actress uh, on Talking Dead said that everyone's been after her about selling out (laughs) <laughs> Rick to the governor right. about right. what happened with Shane and the baby not being hers. And so the actress has been defending herself. And I think not in a very wise way by saying, look, no, 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 I can tell you as the woman who plays Andrea, Andrea didn't say a thing. Right. She said, no, it was Tyrese or, or Sasha or the others. 
And so that's not going to help. It's like, don't throw the other characters in the bus. It's, no one's going to believe that. I mean, yeah, no one's going to buy that. I, the, the thing that I like about uh, uh, Tyrese and whatever her name is. Yeah, Julie. maybe Sasha. I don't, Let's I call can't. her Sasha Julie. Let's call her Sasha slash Julie. Uh, is uh, that they bring a real human compassion element to the show, which is often missing. Herschel had it, you know, but Herschel was a survivalist, you know, but he, but he had it for a while, but now seems to be, um, you know, ever since he lost his leg, his attitude has changed a little bit. But they, but they seem to have brought it back uh, to the show. They, things are considered. They won't be pushed, you know, they're, they're, they're going to survive. But, uh, but they do have a, um, they, they, they don't have that feral edge, that feral edge of uh, I'll survive at all costs that so many of the other characters have. And it's good to see. It's nice to see it varies things a little bit. Yeah. No, I, I hope that those two characters um, survive and that we get a chance to see them kind of. You know, big shootouts coming. I know. And, 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 you know, probably, I mean, for sure it's done and finished already. Uh, they've already shot it. But, you know, probably it's like contract time, and they're like, who wants the most money? And let's see. Well, you know, they're gone. They're gone. You know, because, you know, if AMC uh, doesn't seem to really know how to, how to manage their shows particularly well, they've got two of the big buzz shows on television, period, with Mad Men and The Walking Dead. And it seems to me that uh, they, you know, they, listen, The Walking Dead, they've been brilliant at the way that they have uh, promoted it and showing it in black and white and The Talking Dead is fun and all that stuff. They've done a nice job there. And then some of their other programming has started to follow suit. You know, they've got like Freak Show and things like that, which may appeal to the core Walking Dead audiences there. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, the rumors, you know, I mean, the, 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 the merry-go-round of showrunners on the show the uh, you know the the, the the sort of not very good handling of Frank Darabond the second season where apparently they didn't have any money to do the show and that kind of thing just doesn't seem to pay respect to a show that that I mean is one of their legacies it's one of the things that people in ten years will look back and go that was a cool show that's one of the reasons that we remember you know uh, AMC so well so yeah they could do better well I hope it all. Uh, works itself out. Uh, definitely, we've had some solid episodes. So the next two, next two should be fantastic. Well, I'm having Greg Mazzara on my radio show. On it will air uh, in Toronto on April 6th, I think, if that's a Saturday. I think it is, and uh, and then whatever that Saturday is, the fifth or sixth, and um, uh, we're taping it shortly, and then it, it will air uh, then. And uh, I'm going to poke and prod at that guy and get whatever information I can out of him, although he's leaving, but I have some questions. I have questions for Greg Mazzara. Cool. All right. Looking forward to it. Well, then um, let's, uh, since we got a horror theme, segue into your topic you want to talk about. Yeah, we have, uh, there's a new show on Monday nights now, um, which, uh, you know, you, you, unless you had your head under a rock, you would have heard something about. It's a Bates Motel. It is the uh, prequel. Let's see. Here's the weird thing about this show. It has been uh, advertised, and I think they've done a really great job of the advertising uh, for this show, sort of keeping us interested, and, and it's moody and atmospheric without giving away much of what happens on the show. So I tuned in last night to have a look, and it's Freddie Highmore, who everyone remembers as uh, Little Charlie and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and loads of other things. 
um, as a child actor, he's there's a growth spurt happening somewhere because Charlie and the Chocolate Factory doesn't seem like that long ago. Now he's a, a you know a gangly 16, 17 year old boy, and he plays Norman Bates. Uh, and Norman Bates's mother, Norma Bates, is played by Vera Formiga. And at the beginning of the show, something has happened to her husband and his father. He is dead in the garage with what looks like a nasty head wound. And uh, Vera's character doesn't appear terribly upset by this, although she appears haunted, maybe, but not terribly upset by it. Norman, it seems like maybe he has come out of some kind of trance. He finds the body. He's freaked out. Whatever happens there happens. Cut to they're driving in a car and they're they're driving to uh, you know sort of California ish Arizona I think uh, um, to uh, start a life anew. They bought an old motel called the Starlight Motel and they're going to start their lives again. And it all sounds very much like the the events that could theoretically have happened leading up to the very famous Alfred Hitchcock Psycho movie, except that. Uh, it's set in modern day. He's talking on a cell phone. Oh, he, weird. Yeah. So, um, so it's odd that way. So, you know, for me, as someone who is uh, such a huge fan of the original movie, uh, it, it, it seems odd to me that you would have a show where you have uh, a, you know, all good actors in this thing. Vera Farmiga is great. And she sort of has kind of an old-fashioned beauty about her, if you know what I mean. Like, she seems like she could have been, you know, changed the hairstyle a little bit. And it, she could, this could have been set in the late 40s, early 50s, you know, that would, which would have been about right time-wise for, for Psycho. Um, or, it, it were, and you've got Freddie Highmore, who kind of looks like, sort of, kind of like Anthony Perkins a little bit. And he has that sort of otherworldliness about him, I think. Um, but, uh, but yet it's set in, in modern day. And I don't know how I feel about it because it kind of bugged me from the, uh, from the get-go when the show started. I just kind of thought it doesn't seem right because it's, it, it feels like they kind of want to have it both ways. The, the opening sequence with the dead father, uh, and I guess we should warn spoilers. There's probably spoilers coming here. With, with the dead father is sort of shot, sort of kind of in sepia, not really exactly, but it's meant to look old-fashioned a little bit. Uh, and, you know, all the architecture, obviously they bought this old motel and the big house, and it looks exactly like it does in the movie. Um, so that feels old. He's even dressed kind of like, you know, Frankie Avalon from one of the Beach movies. And, you know, she like it, so it's sort of timeless in that sense, but it's very clearly set in modern day. The music's modern day when he goes to a party and that sort of thing. Um, so it, it, I don't think that conceit works particularly well. And I don't know if it was just simply the idea that younger people won't watch something that is set in the 1950s. Maybe that was a concern, you know, they might get the references, whatever they, you know, it might seem a little too old fashioned for them, but it, it, it just kind of doesn't make sense. And, uh, for me anyway. Yeah, I mean, based on the commercials, I thought this was a retelling of, you know, the old-fashioned story of, of Psycho. So well, I'm now confused, you know. Well, see, well, uh, I think we're getting there. Except that, you know, I'm not really sure how this is a series. 
Uh, again, spoiler, spoiler alert. Someone dies last night. You know, someone died last night in a horrible way. There's, right. you know, the, the show, I mean, if they, if they continue with the tone that they get here, um, this show could have some good creepy moments. And I mean, there was a, a, a rape scene last night that was hard to watch. Like I was a little surprised I was seeing it on, I mean, it was after 10 o'clock for sure on A&E. But remember when A&E used to be called the Arts and Entertainment Channel? Uh, but I, I was watching this, and I was thinking, okay, well, that's you know that that's something that that would have more of a place in a film rather than on a television show. And then there is a revenge stabbing that goes along with that. That was pretty grim. And you know, I thought if, if, if the show was going to have that kind of edge to it, maybe then they can keep it going for a little while. Except, you know, it's set in a small town. It's set in the town where they make it quite clear that everybody knows one another. So you've got these two strangers that come to town. What happens every week? Does like a local go missing? Or is it the, you know, I mean, eventually the police have to kind of figure this out. Or I guess maybe the idea is it's set in a motel. So you've got people coming and going and maybe they just disappear. You know? But, you know, for a show like this to work, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of, of horror. You've got to have a certain amount of, of violence in it. And I'm just not sure that it can sustain itself week after week after week. I mean, eventually you're going to get to a point where the body count is so ridiculously high that, that it, 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 you know, if this thing runs for three years, you know, you'd be like, they've killed like 80 people in three years. <laughs> like, how is it that no one really has caught them yet? You know, so I, I just, I, I wonder about that. And someone here online has uh, pointed out something that I just thought, this is, I mean, I'm a, I'm a film nerd. I make no... Uh, I make no uh, attempt to, to cover that up. But this is even nerdy beyond what I usually uh, would point out here. So uh, Jeffrey Wells at Hollywood Elsewhere has said, just notice this. Check out the house tour portion of the trailer, and you'll notice that Norman's room is located in the wrong area of the second floor. In the 1960 film, Vera Miles found it by taking a right at the top of the stairs as it was located across the hall from his mother's large room. Now his mother's large room has been subdivided and split in two. She has a smaller bedroom towards the front, and Norman's small room is to the left at the top of the stairs. So they messed up the original architecture. See what I mean? This is why I'm reluctant to watch the whole thing. That's what he writes. And, I mean, I get that. People get touchy about this kind of thing. And, of course, you know, her room does have to be kind of in a certain area of the house. Otherwise, eventually, if we ever get to the point where she's a mummified, you know, old lady in a wig, or, you know, Norman's going to dress up, like her and stand in the bedroom window people have to see her from downstairs from where the motel is so the architecture you know according to the movie and according to one of the classic shots in that movie has to be you know you have to have the bedroom in roughly the same place but i thought that was kind of funny he's upset that the bedroom architecture has changed well yeah and, and i guess that's i mean why i probably won't watch the series is that it just sounds confusing and that i'm not quite sure what it is that they're trying to do is it that they're just trying to leverage the fact that everybody's heard of psycho even if maybe a lot of the younger people watching tv these days haven't actually watched the movie it's like oh well you know the psycho thing okay well we're going to do a series that's kind of has those brief moments that where everybody's familiar with and then we're just going to do our own little thing and go off from there so i don't know i mean it's it are they trying to attract a whole new audience and they might be well every then, now Except that, you know, it's called Bates Motel. It's not called Psycho. No. 
And it is, uh, you know, as far as I can see, so far anyway, there's no really direct homages other than character names and things uh, to Psycho. And I, I mean, if they are trying to appeal to kids, uh, you know, a, a much younger audience who haven't seen the movie, then why bother calling it Bates Motel? Why bother, like, why not just create a whole new story about like this kind of offbeat family that is on the run from something that happened and they buy a motel in the middle of nowhere and try and run that. It, it, I don't know. It, it doesn't quite seem, there seems to be something not quite right about it. I'll give it another chance or two. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it had certainly some atmospherics that were, that were nice. Um, you know, it has that moment of course, where they, you know, they've, they've killed the rapist and they don't quite know what to do with them. So they wrap them up in linen and shove them in one of the, the bathtubs in one of the rooms. And then of course the police drive by for a little quick, you know, check out, check up on the premises. And one of the cops has to go to the bathroom, so he goes to the to the bathroom and stands next to the shower while he's taking a pee. And they've got a, a pretty cool overhead shot of the whole thing, where you can see the body this far away from the cop as he's standing there. And you know, I mean, it's listen, we've seen that shot a thousand times, but it, you know, it, it's still we've seen it a thousand times because it works. It works pretty well, and it worked well last night. Um, I hope that that there there is more to this than just like you know. Norman's mother, who's a little crazy, pushing him over the edge, making him a little crazier. I hope there's more to, to this show than that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, oftentimes you get um, shows that are taking a story that people are at least aware of, if not completely familiar, and then they try to reinterpret it. Uh, maybe for the young adult fiction crowd, uh, there was a new version of Beauty and the Beast that came out, I think, like last couple of years where the beast wasn't really a beast, but just a, a guy who looked like a bad boy. You shouldn't bring home to your mom, you know, <laughs> facial tattoos and stuff like that. That's the beast, you oh, know, beastly. that was beastly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is a guy who really has to deal with, you know, the, the social issues of being disfigured. No, not at all. He's just, you know, and rides a motorcycle and people don't like him. Um, yeah. And you have a lot of that. That kind of happens. It is possible to take a really great story and, and translate it to a modern age. Sherlock is the, yeah. the best example of that. Yeah. Fantastic. Elementary, which is the ripoff that they did with Johnny Lee Miller, is a horrible example. Like, but, but see, the difference there, though, the difference there is that with, with uh, Sherlock, you can have these self-contained stories. You had an amazing character. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the character's proactive, he does things, he, he solves crimes, and then he, he catches a bad guy, whatever, throws him in jail, and then the next week he catches another bad guy and throws him in jail. Does... This show is different. This show, the only thing that these characters can do, really, is get nuttier and kill people. Yeah. And so that's the difference. Like, you, you've got, like, I, I don't really know, I mean, we're, we're going to be getting a, a, a glimpse into the mind of, you know, a serial killer eventually is going to be, you know, that, that's what's going to happen, I guess. But, you know, unless it really turns into to a, a serious psycho drama, like a psychological drama, I don't know where the interest is going to come. You know, maybe they can, they can draw it out for this season. I wonder what will happen next year. I don't, I don't see where this could go. It's not like the, the Walking Dead, where there's you know all sorts of characters and all sorts of splinters and things that can happen. This show seems like it's pretty housebound. I mean, you've got you know you've got uh, a, a limited sort of 
milieu, a limited vista of, of places where the show could, could, can go. Uh, the characters, it's got to be about Norman. It has to be about Norman. And we know how Norman ends up already. Yeah. So I just wonder. I, I, I just wonder how long you can tease it out. When the audience is already ahead of you, how do you maintain a show and a story? Uh, and how do you, you introduce suspense? I, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it's a show that's going to be around for a very long time. But it's strange that we've had so much uh, material about Hitchcock lately. There was the Anthony Hopkins uh, movie, and then there was a, a made-for-TV movie. Toby but Toby, and, and I tell you, you know, Toby Jones is either the, I don't know, I, 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 he's such a terrific actor. And do you remember a few years ago when uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman won the Academy Award for the movie Capote? Right, yes. Well, Toby Jones had started a movie that year called Infamous, which was also about the same story. He played Truman Capote and got overshadowed completely because you have a big American star playing him and there was more, you know, a distribution was better and stuff. So this time around, there's two, I mean, who, who would imagine, two hit movies about Hitchcock about essentially the same time period, Psycho and the Birds, kind of like it's sort of one right after the other. Uh, that comes out, Anthony Hawkins, big star in one, Toby Jones playing Hitchcock in the other one. And I'll tell you, in both cases, Toby Jones uh, was in, in, up against Philip Seymour Hoffman, absolutely credible. That was a flip of the coin as to who might have been nominated there. Both really good. I'll tell you, hands down, he was better in, Toby Jones was better than Anthony Hopkins in terms of uh, a true uh, impersonation of Hitchcock. I thought Anthony Hopkins did a good job in grabbing the essence of the guy, but I didn't think that he really looked like him particularly. And, Certainly didn't uh, sound like him. Or yeah, but, like him. But, but I thought, like his portrayal of Nixon, uh, where he didn't really look like Nixon either, that he sort of, he grabbed something that is Nixon-esque and he got the Hitchcockiness of this, but it wasn't quite, it, it wasn't quite as bang on. Toby Jones nailed it. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, I, I preferred the Anthony Hopkins movie uh, I thought the, the that girl, the girl it was called, uh, the HBO show with uh, Toby Jones, just was, uh, I, I thought, cloying and not, not as interesting. Yeah, I find it frustrating when you have uh, the industry suddenly latch on to something, whether it be Alfred Hitchcock or it could be Marilyn Monroe or Bruce Lee, and you just get a slew of, of unsatisfying sort of movies and shows that try to, to, to rekindle that interest. It's just, yeah. ah, come on, you know? These were, these were great and wonderful people. Alfred Hitchcock was a, just still remains one of the all-time great directors and storytellers. Yeah, I mean, it's still, you, people understand what you say. People that, even younger people, I think, that might not have seen, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I would hate to think that not everyone has seen Psycho, but I know it's true. But, you know, even some of, <laughs> but even some of his, you know, lesser known, not even lesser known, but, I mean, his movies were, were mostly very successful during his career, but, you know, I'm not sure how many 19-year-olds have seen Marnie, for instance, you know, and that sort yeah. of thing. But, but, but they still know what, if I say, well, it's like a Hitchcock film. They still know what that means, you know? Yes, very much so. Um, okay, well, uh, the, the topic I wanted to hit upon this week is called de-extinction. And it's been this massive buzzword that uh, for the past week has consumed all the science websites. And it's just fantastic. In fact, I'm surprised it's not getting enough mainstream attention. 
Um, we've, it's been very good lately in terms of the media picking up on, on meteorites that are falling down in Russia, on Chris uh, Hatfield, the astronaut that's up at the ISS space station, and, and you know the Higgs boson, and uh, Curiosity. It's been wonderful. But this has kind of slipped under the, the carpet. But last week, um, it was made public the fact that as a, as a society and a civilization, uh, the, the scientific community has reached the point where they, yes, now have the technology to bring back species that have been extinct. It's a Jurassic Park movie. Correct. Yeah. I mean, this is something that's been people have been talking about for a very long time. Uh, certainly there's been experiments that have been happening for the past decade with, you know, the, the mapping of the genome, uh, the arrival of DNA. You've got you know, cloning that was very successful with Dolly the Sheep. There's been so much activity that has been sort of moving towards this. That I, it's, it shouldn't be a complete shock to everybody, but it still is such an astonishing thing. And so it's, it's not a case of this is about when or about uh, – it's not a case of if or, or how. It's now a matter of when. In fact, they're, they're going to begin the process. Uh, the first animal that they've chosen is the passenger pigeon. And I find this such an astonishing and incredible thing. It just has, has kept me up late at night, you know. So what happens? How do they do it? So they, I mean, they, they've got passenger pigeon DNA somewhere stored in the bones of uh, one that they managed to preserve somehow. They, they do. Uh, in fact, here I'll show you. Uh, I'm going to pull up here. This is uh, my own personal photo. Um, uh, years ago, and that's partly why I'm so, I guess, um, I, I, so connected to this story. So I can pull up here. This is uh, a photo from a video that I have up on YouTube. And I'm behind the scenes of the ornithology department at the Royal Ontario Museum. And what you're looking at is an entire drawer of passenger pigeons. Uh, the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto has one of the largest collections of passenger pigeon wow. birds uh, in the world. It looked like they were wrapped up in something. What was it? Like, um, no, they're, they're – um, let's see if I've got the other photo. Do, 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 do. Here it is. This is uh, him holding it up to my camera. So I could get a better shot. It's oh, a male passenger oh. pigeon. These are, are called skins. And right. so the, the internal uh, guts of the, the animal have been removed. It's essentially much like you would have a taxidermied uh, deer that's been mounted to a wall. It's the, the body, the feathers, uh, the beak, the eyes I don't think have survived. I think those are, are artificial eyes. But it's an astonishing thing to go through their collection. They have an entire drawer. Here's an entire drawer of uh, California parakeets, which was the only parrot that uh, lived in North America that was, you know, from North America, and they're gone. They wow. were completely eradicated for the hat trade. Uh, yeah. Those were the, the, the feathers and the brims, right? Yeah. Whether in women's hats and such, yes, they, they managed to kill them all just for, for that. It's, it's quite astonishing. But the way that it works is that, yes, they will get DNA from samples like those. Uh, and they will then map the genome of that DNA. And by going through it, can identify all the individual markers that represent the different physical characteristics right. of, of how uh, an, a, an organism is sort of created when it's born. We all have this code that's within our DNA that determines how many eyes we have, what color hair, that kind of thing. What's interesting is that um, because we have all evolved we all have a relationship with other organisms on the planet there are pigeons alive today 
that kind of secretly carry a related DNA to the passenger pigeon. And so they have found a pigeon that can kind of act as a, um, uh, as a, well, a carrier for, for this DNA. So they will take um, the, pa the passenger pigeon DNA, they will remove all the main characteristics that make that passenger pigeon a passenger pigeon. Right. And then they will take the DNA of the um, foster pigeon <laughs> and they will re reconstruct that DNA so that it has the passenger pigeon characteristics in it. They will then reintroduce that DNA into the gonads of, apparently it's going to be a chicken. And the chicken will mate with another chicken and they will give birth to a pigeon. And after a couple of generations, all those uh, hidden characteristics will come out through the DNA and eventually you will have a passenger pigeon. So like a couple of generations, I mean, does that mean like after 40 years or does it mean just like a, a few series of mating one, like whatever that, whatever those two chickens creates, <laughs> make a couple of those and then you breed those and then they breed and then, is that that's right. So the, the two chickens will mate and you will end up with a pigeon. Uh, but that pigeon initially, I think it will look like the original pigeon that they wanted. And then when that mates, you will have a second generation that will be sort of a hybrid passenger pigeon and the other pigeon. Right. And then the next mating pair will produce a passenger pigeon. I don't think that this is going to be 40 or 50 years. This is just a matter of, of getting the birds to uh, the point of being adults and then allowing them to mate and then you know the other birds will of course the, the original two chickens will be alive to watch all this process happen that's that's kind of the how they do it uh and so it's not really that complex it's complex in terms of just being able to identify the code that exists within the dna itself right well i it's it's fat i mean it's fascinating the, and the idea that you know that they would implant them in a chicken kind of blows my mind a little bit. I mean, I, I, you know, it seems a little counterintuitive, but I suppose that uh, it's a stable, but it is because it's a stable environment for the, for the, or. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I've, there have been a couple of other projects that have been going and, and chickens seem to be a very popular uh, vehicle or vestibule for, for, you know, as a delivery system for this particular right. DNA. Right. Uh, but what's interesting is that they are doing this with the passenger pigeon. Uh, the passenger pigeon has a very, um, uh, uh, such a tragic sort of story behind it, but it's such an amusing one. Every time that I take a look at at any species that has become extinct, they always seem to you know, have the very same common threads. One being that um, there's usually sort of an evolutionary hiccup. Uh, they have a trait that's, that sort of undermines them, whether it's the dodo birds that just simply don't fight back. You can do whatever you want with them, you know. Uh, in this case, the passenger pigeons only thrive in large numbers. And so when there's lots of passenger pigeons, they're very happy. They love to breed. But when there's only a few passenger pigeons, they're less motivated to breed. And then even fewer, they become less motivated. So as their numbers start to get smaller, it's actually harder and harder for them to be able to survive. Hmm. But they were, and I'll pull up a, a, an image of a passenger pigeon here. Um, because they're very interesting. This is a better shot. And again, the, what you're looking at is a taxidermied passenger pigeon. But they used to be the bird of North America. Yeah, like in how long ago? Because, I mean, they had them in like the last century, right? Right. Our grand, grand, grandparents could tell you all about passenger pigeons. Right. Right. 
Uh, these were the dominant bird of North America. Everybody that came here to North America to kind of settle new lands, the skies were full of passenger pigeons. There were about 5 billion passenger pigeons uh, at that time. And we're talking about the 1800s is kind of yeah. when this whole thing happened. And they were delicious. They, were, they really were. They were the, one of the, the tastiest things that existed on the planet. Um, there are songs uh, devoted to passenger pigeon pot pie. Um, the passenger pigeons would begin in Canada. They, they tend to live up here in southern Ontario. There were about 2 billion passenger pigeons. Passenger pigeons, as I said, they, were in, they liked to clump together in large numbers. Uh, if you went out to the woods, they, they would say that one tree would have as much as 70 different nests just in one tree. And that you would crunch eggshells underneath your feet if you wanted to go out for a little walk or a little hike. And what would happen is that they would be up here during the summer in Canada and then during the winter would go down to the United States. And so you have down in the southern states farmhands, you have miners who had been subsisting off of pork and beans and right. then would start salivating the moment that the passenger pigeons uh, kind of came down to, to, to winter in the summer. Beautiful, beautiful birds and they just tasted wonderfully apparently. Um, lots of songs devoted to them and it was such cheap meat right. anyone could catch a passenger pigeon in fact a hunter once bragged that with one shot of a shotgun he killed 42 of them well yeah because I'm just looking here uh, I'm just trying to find a picture that's big enough like this apparently is a sky full of passenger pigeons let me just uh, throw this up on the screen doesn't want to share. Oh, no. Oh, it doesn't want to share. Anyway, it looks like a, a, a plague of locusts is, a, is approaching uh, uh, these hunters, and there's three or four hunters on the ground, and they're shooting, and there's like dozen birds are dropping like in groups of like three, four, and five at a time. Yeah, no, it, it, you could get them in such large numbers. Uh, people used to ship them uh, in one-ton truckloads. There was a guy in the 1800s who bragged that he earned a million dollars. I'm not adjusting for inflation, but a million dollars just in the passenger pigeon trade. Farmers would feed passenger pigeons to their pigs so they could get a higher price for passenger pigeon-fed pork right, right, right. on the market. <clears throat> really, really... Incredible. And of course, this is all happening at a time in which most people aren't even aware that extinction is even possible. Right. Right. Well, they, you would look up and you think, look at the, you know, there's five billion of them. How can they, how can this possibly end? And it, it, that's the astonishing thing. You have five billion of them, and yet um, we eradicated them in the span of a couple of decades. Yeah. And it was just a case that they were so delicious uh, and people could consume them so quickly. Uh, they were popular among slaves. While you know Leonardo DiCaprio is tucking into his pheasant up in the, the main master house, the slaves right. could at least catch passenger pigeons and have their own delicious meal because they were that 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 sweet and tasty. They were chicken McNuggets with wings. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that was interesting is that scientists did clue in. They did understand what was happening, and there were people that went to Congress in the United States to try to convince regulators to start you know uh, locking off hunting grounds and protecting the birds the other issue was that you know forestry was well in swing at that time and so even the nesting areas were starting to be destroyed but everybody laughed it, you know it's one thing when you're trying to say that an animal that's on the ground is going to become extinct but birds can fly they just did not occur to anybody that if these animals were in threat that they just wouldn't fly somewhere else in fact um 
uh, throughout the seasons, the hunters began to notice because they were making lots of money off of passenger pigeons. And then they became worried when the next season they'd go out and instead of there being 5,000 birds, there was only, you know, 2,000 birds. Right. And then the next year there would only be, you know, 1,000 birds. And people would write articles and say, well, <clears throat> looks like the passenger pigeons have decided to go and visit somebody else this year. Yeah. Yeah. And they were waiting for them to come back. You right. know, it's just absolutely astonishing. So the, one of the other reasons I wanted to talk about this today is that there's a rather uh, distinctive date this week, which is March 22nd, 1900. Uh, what had happened was after many years of hunters complaining about not finding passenger pigeons, it got to the point where you, you'd go out in the woods and they just weren't there anymore. Right. And people were sitting around the campfire and they're eating their pork and beans. <coughs> oh, man, I could go for a passenger pigeon pot pie. You know, they're all reminiscing. And the price, of course, went up. Right. Which didn't help. So it's now 1900, March 22nd. And out of the woods emerges a nine-year-old boy and he's got a big smile from ear to ear because he's holding in his hand the last passenger pigeon and he shot it with his bb gun uh where all the adults had failed to find a passenger pigeon that season he was very proud to have, have got one himself this nine-year-old kid and that was the last. like is this apocryphal or is that that's the that's the last in the wild wow, wow. at that point when that young boy was chris abel <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's astonishing so the the um there were some birds that were in the zoos <clears throat> and the last bird that died uh, uh her name was martha and so now there's this whole movement of saying look we're at the point now they've they've actually done this they've, they've managed to get a couple of uh animals that were extinct and they've created ones that were alive again although they haven't yet been able to make it in, to the point where you have enough numbers to kind of you know have animals running into the wild but it's at the point where the whole thing has been proven uh the the technology works now it's just a matter of applying it to different species of animals that are out there and so the reason why if you do a search for de-extinct on twitter or even in Google, you will get you know hundreds and hundreds of articles. Is that this has spawned a major discussion about now that we can do this? Is this something that we should do? Right. Right. There is all the issues that have been raised in movies like Frankenstein. I was going to say Frankenstein. Called. It's like, can, should you create life? That's the thing. Should you create life? And you know, Frankenstein when it came out was, I mean, you know, clearly. It, it, beautifully written, all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't so much that it was like, the, oh, the horror of like a monster. It was a horror of, of, of a religious kind of, of people going, oh my God, they're, they're, they're toying with the very fabric of, of, you know, the, the, of our morality. Should you be allowed to play God and create life? That's what, you know, the Victorians and beyond found so horrifying about that book. Not the, not, you know, the oh, Boris Karloff monster. It's just the idea of creating life. Yes, completely. And, and, and when Frankenstein came out, you had people starting to experiment with electricity yeah. uh, and, and thinking that this could potentially be something that could resurrect or give life back to a living, um, living being. And so a lot of people, the, the big debate, and it's still today, the, the number one question that's being posed in this instance with de-extinction is, are we playing God? Right. Uh, is this something that we should be playing with? Is it something that is going to have negative consequences? You know, all sorts of things. It's, and it's a very interesting, you know, sort of discussion to have.
Yeah, no, it is. And, and, and I'm sure it's, it'll be one that'll rage on between, you know, the, the scientific community and everybody else. Do we have any idea what the religious right in the United States thinks about this? Because I'm sure that they're, I'm sure they have thoughts. I'm sure they have. I, that hasn't, it hasn't gotten to that point yet. So the first, I, and as I said, you know, this is something I haven't seen on mainstream news. So I don't think the religious right is even aware of it yet. Uh, from what I can tell on my searches, they're all concerned about some Bible television show that had a, a man who looked like Barack Obama playing Satan. But, right. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. but but that, but which is, you know, listen, that, that to me was just one of those things where everyone's looking for controversy where it doesn't exist. And apparently this guy is a really well-respected actor in his home country who has played Satan in a number of different things dating back, you know, a couple of decades uh, and, you know, the makeup artist has said, I don't know what people are talking. Maybe it was could, a fluke. It was a fluke. So, yeah. Yeah. That's it may have just been. And also, I mean, I haven't seen the show, but maybe, you know, um, out of context, that's the one frame in which he yeah. does look like. But anyways, they have yet to weigh in on it. What instead has happened is that you have uh, some people within the, the science community that are saying, look, um, we should be fixing ourselves before we start to initiate this technology. Human ignorance is still a big problem. In fact, one conservationist said his problem is that every time this stuff gets talked about, he has to go to Congress and he has to fight uh, for protection for a, uh, an owl that lives in a forest. And he says, well, he's starting to hear back from all the, the, the lobbyists that represent the, the forestry industries. They're saying, well, great, you've got it all solved. We can go, we can decimate the forests, and you guys can just make new owls. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Uh, and he, the example that he gave was the last time he was up there to testify, uh, they had responded and said, well, you know, couldn't we just uh, reduce the number of the owls to a safe population and then move them to a zoo? Because apparently your captive breeding programs are working really well. We will, you know, then get our hands on the forest. And as the trees grow back, we can then just move the owls back. You know, it, it's that easy, isn't it? You know? And so that's the issue that they're saying is that this is going to become um, going to cause those kinds of problems where instead of having a situation that seems severe that allows us to kind of fix our behavior, instead we're going to create a situation that will just simply support our exploitation all over again. It, it causing more problems almost, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I don't know how I, I exactly feel about that. The other side is that they're saying uh, the scientists who are actually involved in this, and when, partly why this is happening is that there have been secret experiments ha happening around the world. There was efforts to try to bring back an extinct bull. Uh, there's been efforts to try to bring back an extinct goat uh, called, um, and excuse me if I get it wrong, you can send me emails, called a bakarai, uh, which has the worst luck in history. This was a, a goat that had thought to have been extinct. Right. And then many years later, they, they found there was actually a couple of animals that were still left alive. By the time they got into the wild to go and, and find the animals, there was only one left, this poor goat. So they, they managed to luckily catch the goat and take some DNA samples from its ear. Right. They released the goat to the wild, went back, and I think it was two weeks later, found the goat had been killed by a falling tree complete fluke. So now it was extinct again. They use the DNA, uh, test out this whole process, get it into another goat, goat's mate pair, finally get one, and it's born with so many birth defects that it dies in 10 minutes. Right. It becomes extinct all over again. It just has the absolute worst luck. Yeah, yeah. 
But there have been teams around the world that have been doing all these kinds of things. And so what has happened, the reason why this whole announcement has happened is they finally got together, compared notes, and basically each team contributed a piece to the puzzle that has now allowed it, the whole thing to kind of you know be solved. It's been just fantastic. But there is a long list now of people trying to look at animals. They have said, look, the reason that we want to do this is that we feel that when we decimated these animals, when we allowed ourselves to have a nine-year-old blow away the last passenger pigeon, you're playing God. Right. Right. That playing God isn't always about creation, that it can just as well be about destruction. Right. Right. And so this isn't about trying to have the power of life it's it's about repairing the damage that we've already done yeah i'll buy into that i'll buy into that i mean i you know i right now it's i mean it's 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 beyond theoretical i guess but just this much beyond theoretical i mean they're doing it somewhere but i mean it'll be ages before we actually look up into the sky and the sky is darkened with carrier or you know passenger pigeons uh flocks of them flying overhead yeah. yeah, and it's, I mean, of course, people immediately have been asking, are we going to have dinosaurs? Um, right. And the answer is no, because we just can't get our hands on the DNA. We will potentially have woolly mammoths, uh, because woolly mammoths are not that old of a, they were around 35,000 years ago, and fortunately lived mainly in the permafrost of Siberia. Right. We're a lot of uh, we're we're just now starting to find a lot of sort of preserved specimens, and so there is the the sense of that we will have a woolly mammoth. I don't know what we're going to do with a woolly mammoth or what role it will play in the uh, world. Little children will ride on it at fairs and uh, amusement parks. I think yeah. is what we're going to do with it. And that's the big concern, right? Like that that is how things might be exploited. Uh, I mean, I confess, I will be, I'll be right there to see what a woolly mammoth really looks like. They've only just started getting really good specimens out of the permafrost. And one of the big discoveries is that they have strawberry blonde hair, oh. uh, that every image you've ever seen of a woolly mammoth has been wrong. Yeah. They have really ginger reddish kind of wow. hair, which is really kind of cool. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot and it's something that I've had kind of experience with in other um, other avenues. So when cloning was a big story, right. um, and there was a company that had announced that they had worked out how to clone cats. Right. I had the distinction of being the guy who could introduce to Canada what the clone cats looked like. Right. Um, I took Canadam down to uh, Chicago. We were there for a big, huge science exposition in which there were experiments from around the world that were on display. And there was a company there that was introducing clone cats. They offered a service where for thousands of dollars, if you had lost your pet cat, it would make you another one. It would make you another one. Uh, and so here's the thing. If, if Tard, the grumpy cat should meet a very early end, there is a company that could actually take DNA from Tard and reproduce, you know, a, a new generation of grumpy cats. Yeah. See, I listen, I listen as much as I love the grumpy cat, there are cats, there are other cats that I could get. That's the thing. I, this idea, that's playing God. That's messing around with things that you don't necessarily need to do. Right. The, the thing from my experience, though, is that it's never what you think it's going to be. Right. That, Like Frankenstein, the thought that's in our heads in terms of how this is all going to work is far more frightening than the reality. Because the clone cats, I got to tell you, were a letdown <laughs> in that there's, there's nothing to see. Uh, you know, it's not like you were looking at twins. 
because you're not. Right. That you're not creating an exact clone like it's been depicted in science fiction. All you're doing is taking the same code that yeah. was there when you were born, the, the instructions that said, this is where you put a hand, this is where you, the, the eyes are green, the hair is black, and just repeating that. But it's like repeating the recipe for a cake. It still comes out as being a very different cake from the other cake that was there before. So you end up with two cats, and they are technically you know, related as clones. That's how they were born. Um, but you know, it's, it's not like they move in synchronized fashion. It's not like they have the exact same eye uh, facial structure or patterns or personality or anything like that. It's just this is a different way of, of getting the see. What they did was they said, look, it's, we can't bring your cat back to life. But what we can do was give you the sister or brother your cat never had. And that's kind of the process there. But I've been thinking about this. It's, it's kept me up a lot uh, because I've just, you know, I've held passenger pigeons in my hands. I've seen clone cats. This is something I feel like I've got a lot of good knowledge and information and can latch on. My approach to it is to say that we've already done all this. Right. Uh, and that's something I've, I've learned from studying technology, that history tends to repeat itself. Every time we introduce something that we think is new, you know, it turns out we've already gone through this before. All the concerns that we have about the internet today uh, happened when we first introduced movie theaters. Because when movie theaters arrived, the first concern was that since everybody has to watch a movie in the dark, they become anonymous. And so there's nothing there to control their behavior. Uh, it was felt that because a lot of the early movies, like The Great Train Robbery, depicted crime, that they might teach people to commit crimes and encourage it, and that crime rates would go up. And these are the same things we, we talk and discuss about you know, with video games and, and even still movies today. But my example is on how to think about this whole de-extinction process and whether we're playing God can be summed up in two words. Racehorse. Right. That's Frankenstein's monster. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because racehorses don't exist in the wild. Right. They were bred, they're bred for this. Yeah. Correct. And so we've already done all of this. Uh, we've just done it in a di very different fashion, but very similar uh, through a process that you would call unnatural selection, which is that you've had breeders who have taken horses and said, well, I like this horse because he you know, can, you know, has very strong legs. I like this horse because his body is very lean and start breeding them. Well, that's a very primitive way of doing the exact same thing that these guys are going to be doing in the lab. Right. And, you know, racehorses are extraordinary creatures because they would never be able to survive on their own. If the zombie apocalypse did happen, <laughs> the zombie horses, you know, the racehorses are gone. Right. <laughs> These animals have been so deformed by unnatural selection that they cannot live on their own. They cannot feed themselves. They are feather bedded. Uh, they live lives in the equivalent of five-star hotels with 24-hour security cameras on them, with people attending their every need because they're so built to such extreme speed that they sacrifice everything else that, that nature would have balanced out in order to make sure that they survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the big concern about, you know, bringing extinct animals back is the one where we would be doing it for theme park rides or for money, for all sorts of things. And so you can already take a look at a racehorse and say, well, we've already gone through that because it only exists to make rich men feel important. <laughs> right? That's your Jurassic Park story right there. They have taken horses, they've twisted them into these unusual creatures, 
specifically to make money, to enforce status, to enforce, you know, privilege. All the horrible <laughs> motivations that, that make us ashamed of, of being human beings. And so we've already dealt with these issues and seen what happens, what the consequences there. At least with the passenger pigeon, no, there isn't going to be a theme park devoted to passenger pigeons. Right. You could not exploit that animal for that purpose. It's just you've got conservationists who at least are saying, look, we're, all we're trying to do is fix the environment. You know, we're trying to, the, 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 the intent is to take the pigeons once they've been cloned and you get a sizable number of them and eventually return them to the wild. It's not about, uh, you know, introducing a new line of chicken McNuggets. It's, it's not about creating a theme park or anything. So I, I guess I kind of feel okay about what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, you know, it, it, that, that'll all change when, you know, they bring back something and there's just like a little quirk in the DNA and it turns out that the passenger pigeon that they make is like 500 feet long. Then you're going to be sorry you brought that thing back. Well, here's, here's where the technology can be really exploited poorly. Uh, there is a, a paleontologist Canadian, a uh, Canadian paleontologist named Jack Horner, I believe. Jack, yes, uh, out in uh, Vancouver, who owns a museum out there. And he's planning on using this process to turn a chicken into a dinosaur. Because chickens and most birds sort of evolved from dinosaurs, they still carry hidden in their DNA right. uh, the little characteristics for sharp teeth and claws and that kind of stuff. And so his idea is to eventually, through chickens again, uh, end up breeding a chicken that you know, each generation has one, maybe a tail of a dinosaur, or the other one has claws of a dinosaur, until he can actually rebuild uh, a dinosaur. But the question is that whether this process still gets you the animal that you were trying to get in the first place. Because or something, yeah, something that you've built. You yeah. don't have adult passenger pigeons who can teach the younger passenger pigeons. You know, it would be the same as if you wiped out all humanity and then recloned and brought back a human being. Would that human being be anything like us? No, it wouldn't have the memories, it wouldn't have the culture, it wouldn't have anything carrying forward other than just the physicality of it. But... Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I like the idea of it. I think that there's probably a movie on the way already. Someone somewhere is writing it right now. You know, well, I, I maybe mean, uh, Nincenzo Vitali will, will do it with Splice too. It's perfect for him. Yeah, it's yeah. perfect for him. All of the passenger that. pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, be sure to check out our website at heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, you can uh, message us there. Let us know uh, how you're feeling. Let us know what you think is going to happen to Andrea on The Walking Dead. <clears throat> because I, I thought. You know, a, a certain part of you, as a human being, you have to look at it and go, oh, my God, this is terrible. But that's not what happened online. People are like, good, good. I'm glad she got caught. And it was like, this is not for, for a main character on a show like this. And I just don't I, – I wonder uh, if – and I will ask Greg Mazzara this when I, when I interview him about this. I wonder uh, if they saw that coming, if they understood what was going to happen with that character or not. That will be uh, a topic of conversation uh, between us. Yeah, I'm sure they've they've probably had conversations about you know you're not writing your your heroes the same way you would typically do so, and so you yeah. can't be sure what the outcome is. And Robert Kirkland's had very similar experiences with his comic book, 
where the things that happened to Michonne and the governor, a lot of people wrote in and said, I'm never reading your comic book again because he had just pushed the boundary so long. So they may have been worried about that, may not have thought that people are going to end up hating one of their main characters. I know. It's, it has happened. It, it's very interesting. I mean, it, and it doesn't even seem like she's one of those characters that you love to hate. It just seems that people just hate her. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It just, you know... It's like you meet somebody and you don't know for whatever reason. I just, I just hate that person. I just like hate that, hate person. that woman. Oh, <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, we'll reconvene next week with Absolutely. a whole new Walking Dead. Yep. Talk to yep. you soon.